0: So today we're going to jump back into the Gospel of Mark. And here in in Mark's Gospel, Jesus' disciples, they've just seen the unforgettable transfiguration, followed by a spectacular healing episode at the foot of the mountain. The disciples have finally seen the true glory of their Master now they finally know who they're dealing with in Jesus. So, everything's going to be different now, right? Everything's going to be better for the disciples. Now, with a clear vision of who Jesus is, the disciples are going to get their act together, right? Uh, no. In fact, It's pretty much the exact opposite of that. If you have your Bibles, you could turn now to Mark chapter 9. We're going to look at verses 30 through 37. These verses are also in the bulletin. This is Mark chapter 9. And we're going to look at verses 30 through 37. Let's check out our disciples. Verse 30. They left that place and passed through Galilee. Jesus did not want anyone to know where they were because he was teaching his disciples. He said to them, the Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men. They will kill him. And after three days, he will rise. But they did not understand what he meant and were afraid to ask him about it. They came to Capernaum. When he was in the house, he asked them, what were you arguing about on the road? But they kept quiet, because on the way, they had argued about who was the greatest. Sitting down, Jesus called the twelve and said, anyone who wants to be first must be the very last and the servant of all. He took a little child whom He placed among them. Taking the child in His arms, He said to them, Whoever welcomes one of these little children in My name welcomes Me. And whoever welcomes Me does not welcome Me, but the one who sent Me. This is God's Word. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for these incredible words. Thank you for the the amazing teacher you sent us in your son. What a lesson this is. And we we pray that this lesson would go deeply into our souls. That it would find its way through all of the distractions of this world. It would find its way through all the sin and the pride of our lives and find its way deep into our hearts because we know ultimately this is not just any teaching. This is the teaching from your Son. And ultimately this teaching is about Him. And Father, there is no greater teaching than that. And so we ask for your Spirit to put these words deep inside of us today. To encourage us and to strengthen us this morning. And it's in your son's name that we pray. Amen. Okay, so for the second time now, the disciples have heard Jesus' ominous prediction of his impending suffering and death. And how do they respond to this prediction of suffering? Well, they do the natural thing And they engage in a heated debate about, of all things, who was the greatest among them? Unbelievable. (laughs) Unbelievable. (laughs) Jesus has just told them he's going to suffer and be killed. And they're like, cool. Which one of us is the greatest? I mean, it's truly unbelievable. But but is it, though? Is it really that unbelievable? I mean, you and I do the exact same thing every day. Every day, we do the same thing. The disciples' problem is our problem. So don't be too shocked by this. We're in the same boat. Our modern church has been assaulted with a cultural perspective that sanctifies winning. Winning. Winning is the most important thing. Bigger is better. We've got to grow a big church. We've got to have a famous pastor. We've got to have a really big social media following or we're not successful or we're losing. Winning is everything. We've got to win at all costs. Being number one. It's all important. It's all important. And this American idea has slithered its way into the church and into our hearts. And hey, you're looking at numero uno, culprit, right here. Okay? I like to win too, I like to be first. So we're all in the same boat here today. But you know, this isn't just an American problem as we've just seen in Mark's gospel. This is a human problem. It's been a human problem ever since Adam bit into that fruit. And this brings us to point number one in your outline, our great problem, our great problem. The culture surrounding Jesus and His disciples in our text today was steeped in narcissism. Much like our own social media, Facebook, and Instagram culture. They were steeped in narcissism. German historian A. Schlauter says this of this time period. He says, quote, At all points in worship, in administration of justice, at meals, in all dealings, there constantly arose the question of who was greater. And estimating the honor due to each was a task which had constantly to be fulfilled and was felt to be very important. End quote. This is a culture steeped in narcissism. Precedence was a cultural preoccupation. But the radical Jesus would have none of it. He attacked it viciously. His teaching here in our text today was and is extremely countercultural and counternatural. Counternatural. The natural human instinct is to dominate, for the strong to eat the weak. That is the natural human instinct. And we, hey, if you're a human in the building today, that's you, and that's me. We live to be served by others. We don't fellowship with others. We don't become friends with others unless they add value in some way to our lives. They got to add value, they got to produce something for us, or we'll have none of it. We use people until their contributions to us dry up, and then we discard them like an empty pack of cigarettes. Our mantra is, your life for me. Your life for me. I will use your life to meet my needs. Just think for a moment how selfish the human heart is. Let's go back to our text to see. The disciples have literally just heard the voice of God the Father speak through a cloud on the Mount of Transfiguration. His love and affection for Jesus. They've just heard it. <laughs> the voice of the Father. They have just seen Christ drive out a demon from a boy with a word. They've just seen it. And they've just heard Jesus once again predict his own suffering and death. They've just heard it. And immediately Without hesitation, they begin arguing about which one of them is the greatest. Now, the glory on the mountain got their attention. Sure, it did. It did. Jesus' explicit prediction of his impending death made their ears perk up. Yeah, it did. But as verse 32 makes clear, none of that helped them understand the heart. Of jesus look at verse 32 but they did not understand what he meant and were afraid to ask him about it they assumed he must be speaking in some kind of weird parable again ah there's that jesus he's always talking in these parables we don't get it we don't know what he's talking about but we also don't want him to scold us so we're just going to keep our mouth shut we'll just pretend like we get it yeah it's good jesus sounds good yeah The disciples don't get it. They don't get who Jesus is at all. And they don't get why he came at all. Even though he's told them explicitly multiple times. This is not a parable, if you noticed. (laughs) This isn't a parable. It's just facts. He's just telling them what's about to happen. He's going to be killed and then he's going to rise again. It's not a parable. But they cannot understand Jesus' explicit words. Why not? Why not? Are they stupid? Are they ignorant? No. No. This is not an intellectual problem. It's not a mind problem. It is a heart problem. It's a heart problem. That's why they cannot understand the disciples' hearts were eaten up with pride. Eaten up with it. And so they don't understand Jesus because they cannot in any way fathom a world in which humility is a winning strategy. They cannot at all fathom that. How is submission service, and suffering going to change anything. Jesus, suffering is our current problem. We are suffering under the, under the powerful hand of Rome. Suffering is our problem, Jesus. So how could more suffering solve our problems? This is the mindset of the disciples. And this is my Mindset and your mindset too. This is exactly how we think. We avoid suffering at all costs. Suffering is the greatest evil to us. And we only give lip service to loving our neighbors as ourselves. We just give lip service to it. But do we actually love our neighbors as much as we love ourselves? I don't. <laughs> I admit, I don't even know my neighbor's names. I've heard them a few times, I don't remember them. So, not only do I not love my neighbors as much as I love myself, I don't even know their names. So, this is the boat that we are in. (laughs) And so, what do we do? How do we change? Do we need a New Year's resolution? Do we need a better accountability partner? Do we need to just try harder and do better? No. (laughs) No. Because the irony is all those things will only contribute to our pride. Only contribute to it. The better we perform, the more prideful we get. The more pharisaical we get. (laughs) It's the ultimate irony. And like I said, I struggle with this big time. I am not up here pointing the finger at nobody but me. This is a me problem. I like to be number one. I like to win. Join me in watching a football game and you'll see how much I like to win. But I like to win in everything. And boy, do I struggle. I struggle because I like to win. My ego gets in the way. My failures, because of my ego, and my desire to win and to be first, my failures get me really low. I mean, they just crush me. And my successes, quote, unquote, my successes get me too high. I get a little puffed up. Start feeling pretty good about myself, about my successes. So my failures get me way too low and my successes get me way too high. High, and it's all because of my ego. It's pride that is causing that. Just this week, I found myself wallowing in selfishness. I did. And narcissism. I found myself out of the blue super worried about what others think of me. I found myself super concerned about my lack of influence in the city of Huntsville. I want to be first. Dang it. (laughs) I want everybody to know my name. I want my name in lights. I want Gospel Life Church. I want our name in lights. I want everybody to know who we are. I want to be first. Dang it. And honestly, I got far more depressed about this than the moment called for. It was silly, but I got far more depressed about this than the moment called for. And for just a second, for just a second, it felt like death. It felt like death. Because in reality... It was, it was death for me. And then I came to this darn text this week. (laughs) As fate would have it. (laughs) I opened my Bible to Mark chapter nine to get ready for this sermon. And then I read verses 36 and 37. Let's read them together. Verse 36. He took a child, a little child, whom he placed among them. Taking the child in his arms, he said to them, Whoever welcomes one of these little children in my name welcomes Me. And whoever welcomes me does not welcome me, but the one who sent me. Now, in verse 36, the Greek language is pretty strong here. Jesus did not just hug this little child, he bear hugged this little child. Jesus wrapped him up in his arms like a pretzel. Now you and I read that story and it warms our hearts. Right? We say, oh. Just like <laughs> if, if I went and grabbed one of the proctor children and just Put him on my knees and, and preach the rest of the sermon that way. Y'all would say, oh, isn't that sweet? We would. But that was not the reaction of the disciples. It was not. <laughs> it was not the reaction of the disciples. Why not? Well, in the first century, children were second class citizens children were not to be seen or heard in this society they were greatly looked down upon because they only consumed resources and did not produce any so they were like leeches on society Uh, they only sucked life away from the family then provide anything and hey, you think life is hard now? Life was hard then. And it is very, very difficult to raise a children or to raise a child in the 1st century. And so children were seen as a drain. A drain on society. And so they were looked down upon. Until they reached a certain age where they could contribute, where they could work in the fields or do something to produce something for society. So Jesus publicly loving and bear hugging this little child was stunning to the disciples. Stunning. And what he said in following the bear hug was even more stunning. <laughs> Jesus' point to them is radically clear. It may not be radically clear to you right now, but it was radically clear to them. Let me make it clear if it's not clear to you now. Jesus is essentially saying this, and this is exactly how they would hear it. Jesus is saying to his disciples, So, you guys want to be great. You want to be great, huh? You want to do world changing things? Awesome. I'll tell you how to do it. Love this child, love him. In fact, love all those who can provide you with zero resources. All those who cannot improve your social media following. All those who cannot put your name in lights. All those who cannot help you get ahead in life. Love them. And you'll be great. Love them. And you'll change the world. You'll change it this brings us to our last point in your outline we've seen our great problem which is pride and selfishness and now we come to God's great solution God's great solution this is a beautiful teaching from Jesus a profound command from Jesus here to his disciples and to us There's only one problem with it. We can't do it. We can't do it. Not like Jesus wants us to anyway. We cannot. You and I can't and the disciples can't either. The vast majority of the time, if we're honest, if we're honest, the vast majority of the time, we are only looking out for number one. And when I say vast majority, I really mean like 99% of the time. (laughs) We are only looking out for number one. I'm only concerned with me. And Jesus knows this. He knows this good and well. That is why the little child he holds in his arms in our story is not just a picture of children or of the least of these or of our neighbor. No, the child, though he is those things, he is also a perfect picture for us. He's a perfect picture of us. We are the little child with no resources and nothing to offer Jesus' kingdom. And Jesus wants to do for us exactly what He did for the child in our story today. It's the entire reason He came. It's the whole reason That he came. He knew good and well that we were selfish, self consumed, narcissistic, prideful, and had no chance, no chance of having any kind of a relationship with God on our own. He knew that. We could not help ourselves, but he could. He could And he gives us a clue to this in verse 35. Look at verse 35. Sitting down, Jesus called the twelve and said, "Anyone who wants to be first must be the very last and the servant of all." Jesus here tells his disciples exactly who will be first in the kingdom. Oh, you guys are arguing about who's going to be first? I'll tell you who is. It'll be the one who willingly becomes the very last of all. The one who becomes a servant of all. let me ask you a question. How many people in the history of the world can claim to have done that? To have willingly become the very last. To have become the servant of all. How many? Tell me. One. Just one. The person who will sit atop Jesus' kingdom is Jesus Himself. Because He alone has come to do what none of us are willing to do. And He has come to do it in our place. For us. Jesus did not come to show us the way to God. He came to be the way to God. Jesus did not come for people who have it all together. Who have a lot to offer. Who always do what He commands. No, He came for you. And He came for me. He came to do what we were unwilling to do and unable to do. And right now, he is looking at all those who are hurting, who are sinful, who are prideful, who are burned out on religion, who are stuck in selfishness, and he's saying with a smile on his face, come to me. Come to me. I will heal you and I will give you rest. I have come to make all things new. I have come to give you rest. But how exactly does Jesus give us rest? Well, he tells us in verse 31. Verse 31. He said to them, the Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men. They will kill Him. And after three days, He will rise. The greatest of all became the weakest of all. The first, the very first became the very last. For you and for me. You see, he gives us rest by switching places with us. We get rest while he gets wrath, we get peace. Because he gets chaos. We get light because he gets darkness. We get his kingdom because he gets our cross. And what will really put your heart at ease and help you sleep snug as a bug in a rug tonight, is this. When you come to the stunning realization that Jesus was glad to do it. (laughs) He wanted to do that. He wanted to switch places with you. He wanted to live the life you could never live. And He wanted to die the death you deserved to die for your sin. He wanted to do that. Hebrews 12.2 says this, Let us look to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before Him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is now seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Don't you see? the answer to our pride and selfishness is not us trying really super duper hard to have more humility. No. The answer is the stunning humility of Jesus. The stunning humility of Jesus in His birth in a stable. His life as a rejected rabbi. And his gruesome death in our place. Jesus did not come to dole out punishment for our selfishness. He came to bear the punishment for our selfishness. He took the punishment that we deserved. He took it so that we will never have to, ever. Our life mantra is your life for me, but Jesus' mantra is my life for you. My life for you. Please, don't be like the disciples who misunderstood Jesus' heart and His mission Don't leave here today committed to redoubling your efforts on being humble. Instead, leave here today in awe of the remarkable humility of your King. That's how we should leave here today. In awe of Jesus and His humility. Because it is His humility that will heal us our crucified and risen Jesus, despite what you have heard, potentially at many other churches, or despite what you read from many well-meaning Christians on social media, our King is powerfully drawn, not to people who can do big things for Him, but to people who need big things from Him. He is powerfully drawn to them for they are the entire reason He came in the first place. So, you need more humility? Look to Jesus. Go to Him for it. You need more love of neighbor? Go to Jesus for it. You need more fill-in-the-blank? Go to Jesus for it. He is our only solution. He is our only solution. Now I would venture to say that the child in our story today, at this moment in time, was the safest person in the history of the world. I mean, think about it. If Jesus has you in a bear hug, who could touch you? Who could come against you? The child probably didn't realize this, but he was the safest person who had ever lived (laughs) at that moment. Believer, do you know that this exact kind of safety and rest is already yours? Uh, it is already yours. Do you know that despite your sin, despite your pride, despite your narcissism, Jesus loves you and he is radically close to you. You may not feel it, you may not realize it, but it is true. He is as close to you this morning as he was to that little child in the story. Your pride and your arrogance does not keep him from you. There is nothing you can do that can keep him from you, that could ever remove his nail-scarred hands from your shoulders. Ever. (laughs) You have the same safety and rest as the child in our story. You have a Savior who is madly in love with you. Madly in love. And he is calling you to find forgiveness and rest in him. To repent of your selfishness and find rest in His loving arms today. Don't you want to get in on that? (laughs) I do too. I need it. Bad. So let's go together. Let's go to Him together. Let's pray.